number four, where we're at. And before we get started here, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We do thank you for the, the day that you've given us, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather here together around your word and to Consider it, to study it, to think about it for just a little bit. I just pray, Lord, you just help us, Lord, to uh, glean from it what you would have us to, Lord, that's going to uh, grow us and help us and encourage us, Lord. I just pray that you guide and direct me in my thoughts and uh, help me, Lord, as I teach from your word. I pray, Lord, ask you just be with those who uh, aren't able to be with us today through work and uh, sickness and different things. And, Lord, I just pray, help us as a church, Lord, to be a, a witness in this community. We thank you for all you do and all you see, we pray in Jesus' name. And amen. Okay, Daniel chapter number four, and uh, we've been kind of following along with uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and the, the people of Babylon. They've came and they've conquered Israel. They've carried away the Israelites captive. Uh, in the first chapter, we are seeing how they were trying to cause the Israelites to become uh, Babylonian. They were trying to get them to eat the Babylonian foods and uh, speak in the Babylonian language, take on Babylonian names to uh, become part of that culture, to acclimate to that culture. And uh, we find that they that the Israelites took a stand that these uh, three Hebrews and Daniel, I guess four Hebrews, uh, said, we will come and we'll take part in your society as long as it doesn't go against our God and his laws. And so they said, we're not going to eat your meat, we're not going to drink your wine, we're going to keep from violating God's dietary laws, and they put God to the test, and God showed that he was more powerful than the Babylonians, and the people were able to, uh, these four Hebrews that took a stand, were able to stand in Babylon with a uh, clear conscience. And because of their stand, because they were uh, refusing to violate their God to fit in in Babylon, God blessed them and exalted them, caused them to uh, prosper and be promoted. And then we saw after that that uh, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And uh, he had this dream, and in it there was a big statue and uh, made of different things. And he knew that the dream was important. He wanted to know the meaning of the dream. And all of the best of the best, the cream of the crop down in Babylon couldn't tell him what it was all about. And so he ordered for all of them to be killed. But Daniel stood up and he said, wait just a minute, give God a chance. And so he prayed about it and God gave him the dream, told him what the interpretation was. And uh, he stood before Nebuchadnezzar, told him what the dream was all about. And the dream was a warning. It was showing how the kingdoms of the earth would... Uh, rise and decline, they would rise and fall, uh, all the way up until Jesus Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom. Uh, the, the mountain that was cut without, or the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that destroyed the empires of the earth, and grew and stood forever. Uh, we saw that illustrated in them, uh, proving God to be the God of gods, as Nebuchadnezzar found out. And so anyway, Daniel was promoted then, but his promotion was short-lived because even though uh, he had gotten favor with Nebuchadnezzar and the, the people of Babylon, even though the other three had gotten favor with the people of Babylon, it wasn't too long before Nebuchadnezzar's pride got the best of him. And even though he had proclaimed God to be a God of gods and the revealer of dreams and secrets and things, uh, he went back to his same way of uh, doing things, and he created this big statue, this big uh, uh, tower or whatever it was. We don't know the shape. We often picture it as being a statue of himself or a statue of a man. But he made this statue, and he demanded that everybody bow down to it. And whenever the music played, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow because their God says, uh, You'll, you shall not bow down to any graven images. You shall not have no other gods before me. And so once again, they took a stand on God and God's word. They sided with what was right whenever everyone else was doing wrong. And their lives were in danger. The king says, I'm going to throw you into a fiery furnace. We know how that turned out for them. Uh, they threw them in the furnace, but they received no hurt. The, the smell of smoke didn't even pass upon them. And they came out of the furnace victorious, showing that God was more powerful 
than King Nebuchadnezzar. He was more powerful than the fire, than any decree. And so, though all men could not change Nebuchadnezzar's mind, God could. And so, Nebuchadnezzar once again praised God and said, what a great God was the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that's where we closed out last week at the end of chapter number three, as Nebuchadnezzar is praising God. And we would think, oh, that's a great thing to have uh, the rulers of the nation on your side, to have uh, the, the king of the empire, or whatever you want to call him there, uh, to be standing for your God and to be praising your God. And a lot of people would jump on that and would say, well, Nebuchadnezzar must have gotten saved. Look at how he's talking about God. Look at how he's acknowledging God, right? But we know that that's not the case because we have the rest of the story. How often has there been times where either in pop culture or uh, uh, different ways in our world today has someone said something positive about God? Someone has made some sort of a profession, wrote a song, acted in a movie, did something that everybody celebrated and said, see, they're a Christian because of maybe a short emotional uh, tribute that they made in some way whenever we find that it was temporary, right? Remember back a couple of years ago that, uh, I hate to even bring this out behind the pool, but maybe I need to step over here. Remember a couple of years ago whenever Kanye West came out and he was doing this gospel album and things and talked about how he was a Christian and all these things. And this is the guy that tried to actually hijack the name of God and say that he was basically God and all kinds of blasphemous things. And then later on came out and called himself a Christian. Y'all remember that? Have you followed anything about him since then? The, guy, the guy's a lunatic, okay? But there were a lot of evangelical Christians that were celebrating his conversion back then, right? And so we find in all of this to be careful about these sensational uh, confessions and these different things like this. I'm not saying doubt every time someone says they get saved. That's not what I'm saying. But there is room to be cautious whenever these people have uh, sudden transformations or emotional transformations brought on by different circumstances. And we see this happening with Nebuchadnezzar. He experiences something, and then all of a sudden, he has changed his tune. But it doesn't last, right? And so anyway, that's what we've been seeing going on here. And so he has praised God. We also cautioned last week that whenever the governments are defending or um, promoting a religion, we're in trouble as well. We could be excited and say, oh, we've got Christian leadership and they are governing by Christian principles and they are persecuting those who are against God. Wait a minute, that's not government's responsibility. And if they can do that in your favor, in the religion that you serve, they can also do that in the religion that you don't serve. And all of a sudden you become the enemy. And so we need to be careful about celebrating whenever governments are endorsing religion. We can look back through Christian history, church history, and find that whenever there is a, uh, a state religion, it becomes corrupt and oppressive. God doesn't need politics. He doesn't need religion to be mixed in with government. He doesn't need the power of armies or police to enforce Christianity. He doesn't need any kind of government to force people to believe or to adhere to something, okay? Uh, it's often been said that someone who has been forced to believe something against their will uh, didn't actually believe it. They're of the same mind still, right? There's a little rhyme, I forget it. But anyway, uh, this is what we see going on here. And so they can celebrate and say, oh, look, Nebuchadnezzar is saying that God is the God of gods. They're saying that if anyone speaks against our God, he's going to cut them in pieces and make their house a dunghill. What a great uh, victory for Christian rights, for religious No, wait a minute. No, it's not. Because if you have a lunatic like Nebuchadnezzar on your side, he's a loose cannon. And before too long, he's going to end up uh, coming back after you, right? 
What is new? Reformation. That happened in the Reformation, they, yes. They start to, you know, like the Catholic Church was doing the, the like the Cardinals, yeah, and so you have that going on throughout the Reformation because uh, in Germany with, under Luther and the ones that followed after Luther, they began uh, persecuting anyone who wasn't Lutheran yeah. and persecuting the Catholics. Yeah. We can even find uh, in Ireland, Irish history, okay, between the Protestants and the Catholics mm -hmm. and how the Protestants persecuted the Catholics, okay? And so you see that kind of stuff happening whenever the government is yoked up with the church that it brings corruption and persecution. Uh, I'm not gonna bring a whole lot of this in, but if you look into uh, American history, okay? Same thing was going on over there, and they were trying to fight over what would be the religion of America. Because you have a lot of them were coming to America fleeing persecution, and then they wanted to set up their religion as being the religion of America. And so you had uh, all the different groups, the the Catholics and the Lutherans, and you had the uh, 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 Dutch Reform, and you had the Congregationalists, and you had, I forget, several other groups there. They were saying, this needs to be our new nation's religion. And if it wasn't for uh, a couple men who believed in separation of church and state, one of our Baptist distinctives, arguing and lobbying against it, and arguing for freedom of conscience in the matter of religion, America would have had a national religion as well. They tried. And so the only reason why America doesn't have a national religion is because a few people stood on biblical principles and said, wait a minute, the government should not regulate what people believe. Okay? So anyway, we see that going on here, and that was something we cautioned about last week. And so this week we're going to be looking at chapter number four, and I told you last week that chapter number four is... Uh, an odd passage in scripture. And the reason why it is an odd passage, uh, what kind of men do you think of whenever you think of writers of scripture? Who comes to mind whenever you think of the authors in, in the Bible? Moses. Moses, he wrote the first five books, right? Some of the Psalms? Come on, everybody, this is an easy question. What are some of, what, who do you think of as authors of scriptures? Those who pen the Bible. David. David wrote Psalms, right? Paul. Paul wrote around half of the New Testament, right? Some of the apostles. What do you say? Yeah, several of the prophets, right? Okay. But who wrote chapter 4 of the book of Daniel? Mm -hmm. Nebuchadnezzar penned chapter 4 of Daniel. And so Daniel was in Nebuchadnezzar's court. He was one of Nebuchadnezzar's advisors. And he has watched Nebuchadnezzar's journey. From the time that Daniel and the others came in, and Nebuchadnezzar first uh, got a glimpse into the God of the Hebrews. And as they took a stand and God blessed his people for their stand, and Nebuchadnezzar is sitting back and he is watching these men as they are standing for their God. And he's seeing how God is interacting with them, how God is uh, prospering them along, how God is empowering them to interpret dreams, and how God has made them wiser than all of his other servants. And he's watching this. And he sees God whenever he, when God is put to the test with the whole thing of uh, the the four Hebrews eating pulse and not eating the king's meat, he sees them doing that. And he says, okay, that's odd. Haven't seen that before. I'll make a note of that in my mind. And then whenever uh, Daniel's able to interpret the dream when no one else is, he's keeping, keeping score, if you will. He's paying attention to this. Whenever the th three Hebrews are thrown into the flames and they're not burnt, he's taking notes on all these things, okay? He's watching all of this and pondering them in his heart, as it talks about with Mary in the New Testament, right? And so as he's pondering these things, as he's paying attention to these things, God is working in his life. God is working in his mind and in his heart. And God is drawing wicked and egotistical and pagan King Nebuchadnezzar to himself. 
Isn't that crazy? Don't we often think of the Old Testament being God dealing with the Jews? Does God just want the Jews? In the Old Testament, was he just after the Jews? Was he just the God of the Jews? No. God still loved the world even in the Old Testament. And so he chose the Jews to be a light unto the Gentiles. Just like in the New Testament, the church is to be a light into the world, right? And so in this time, we're finding Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being a light to the Gentiles. And God drawing Gentiles unto himself through them. And that's what we're seeing going on. And so I told you at the end of chapter number three that this was a short-lived thing that Nebuchadnezzar gave the Lord a little bit of lip service here. He praised God a little bit, but he was going to go back into his old ways, right? But chapter four is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. Chapter number four is Nebuchadnezzar telling about how he finally came to trust the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So uh, let's go ahead and let's read the first part of this here. And we're going to kind of skim over this a little bit because uh, really a lot of it is just him telling the story uh, and kind of going along his dream and things twice here. And uh, maybe not as much to uh, glean from that, just some thoughts afterward. But anyway, chapter number four, verse number one. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. So just an opening, Nebuchadnezzar's words, him thinking that he is, uh, Nebuchadnezzar previously thinking that he is the king of kings, thinking that his kingdom is the greatest and that he is the greatest king and that his kingdom is going to outlast and it's going to continue and all these different things that Nebuchadnezzar arrogantly thought about himself. Now we see in chapter number four, he's had a change of heart. And he's basically saying here, Kings come and kings go. He says, one day I'm going to be forgotten about, but God is still going to be ruling. And it says, how great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is everlasting, is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar has been put in his place. He says, I used to think that I was hot stuff. He used to think that he was big, that he was the one that was in control. And he has realized that he is not, but instead that God is the one that's in control and God will be there long after Nebuchadnezzar is dead and gone. And so in a way, as we see this passage of scripture and the rest of the chapter here, if we could put it in a little bit of a more modern day text or context here, this would be like Nebuchadnezzar standing up in church and giving his testimony. This would be him standing up and telling you, I used to be a rotten guy. I used to be horrible. I thought that uh, I was the greatest king ever. I exalted myself above everyone else. I boasted even against the true God. And God began to work in my life. And God began to show himself. And I even blasphemed. I persecuted his people. I was throwing people in uh, prisons. I was throwing them into fires. I was commanding people to bow down to idols. I was doing all of these wicked things but God was pursuing me. And through all of this, I decided I'm going to exalt myself above everyone. I'm going to declare myself to be the one who has done all of these things. And God one day gave me a dream. And in that dream, he warned me that I'm going to be humbled. And in that dream, he warned me that if I didn't change my ways, I was going to lose my throne, that I was going to lose my sanity, and I didn't believe it. Even his prophet told me that I better straighten up or God was bringing judgment on me, and I didn't believe it. But instead, I shook my fist at God, and God brought about the judgment he promised. And you know what God did to me? He caused me to leave the throne and be sent out in the fields like a wild animal for seven years. And seven years, I was insane, and I went out and acted like an animal, ate with an animals. I was 
unclothed and my hair became matted together like dreadlocks and I had great big old long claws and I was eating grass with the cows. And then all of a sudden, my senses came back to me after seven years, just like God said that it would. And I stood back up like a man. I went and got my hair cut and got washed out. I cut my, took my, my fingernails and I got my clothes put on. And I realized what God was trying to teach me. That there is a God in heaven. And that he is greater than any man. And I am just his servant. And he can do with me whatever he will. That I am not the greatest king that ever lived. That nothing that I have is because of my doings or because of my intelligence or my strength. But everything that I have is because of who he is. And at the end of all of this, Nebuchadnezzar gives God praise and gives him his proper place and says, I am just a man. I am just God's creation. And God is in charge and all that I have comes from him. And he praises God in this. And so this is the story as we go through this. And I'm not going to, to read over this. I kind of skimmed it in, in Nebuchadnezzar's testimony there. But he just simply said, I was a wicked king and God got a hold of me. And now I know him. So he tells about how he gets saved in this passage. So just a, a brief summary here to save reading all of this. Nebuchadnezzar in verses 4 down through verse 18 he has a dream, and in this dream, there is a tree, a mighty tree, and underneath the tree, all of the animals are feeding and faring sumptuously and are enjoying the increase because of this tree. And then there is an angel that comes down and makes a proclamation and says that the tree is to be cut down. And that the tree is to be cut down, but there is to be an iron band put about the stump, and... Uh, then there is the command that's given here in verse 17. This matter is the decree of the watchers or the angels and the demand by the word of the Holy One to the intent that the living may know that the most high ruleth in the kingdom of man and giveth, giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. And so that is the summary of his dream that there was a tree all of the world enjoyed the benefits of it. It was cut down. And the purpose for this was that men would know that God rules in the kingdom of men and he gives these kingdoms to whoever he wishes. Okay? And so he had this dream. And once again, like the dream before, he knew that there was a significance to it. None of his men could interpret this dream. And so he calls for Daniel. And Daniel says, okay, I'll pray about it. I'll find the interpretation. He does. He's astonished by it. And he's afraid to tell the king the interpretation of the dream. And the king commands him and says, don't hold back. I want to know. And Daniel tells him that the interpretation is in favor of those that hate Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, this isn't good for you. And so he tells him what's going to happen is what I just said there a little bit ago is that, uh, verse 22, It is thou, O king, thou art grown and become strong, for thy greatness is grown and reacheth unto the heavens, and thy dominion to the ends of the earth. And whereas the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, and saying, Hew down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass uh, in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over. This is an interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and they shall wet thee with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over thee, till thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. And whereas they commanded to leave the stump of the tree roots, thy kingdom shall be sure unto thee. After that thou, excuse me, after that thou shalt have known that the heavens do rule. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, 
and thy iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be the lengthening of thy tranquility. And so he has this dream. The dream is, as I said, the tree is cut down. There's a band of iron and brass that's put upon it, and he is driven out amongst the beasts of the field for seven years. But he says that this band of iron and brass means that his kingdom is secure to him. So imagine this, okay? This is something that I can never wrap my brain around. You have a king. He goes nuts. He goes out and acts like a wild animal. And he's done with his career, right? Who's going to put him in as a king? They've watched him grazing with the cattle. Who's going to be voting him back into office? Who's going to be bringing him back as a king after his mental breakdown, right? But he says, after seven years, you're going to ascend back to the throne after you've learned your lesson. So God basically puts Nebuchadnezzar in a seven-year time out. Right? And he says, you're going to learn your lesson, and just to show you that I'm God, that I can take your kingdom away, and I can give it back to you, I'm going to let your entire people see you as insane, and yet you're still going to come back and be their king. Wouldn't that be nuts? You imagine one of our modern day rulers having a complete nervous breakdown, going to the loony bin and then coming back to office? I mean, their career is over, right? Especially as fickle as things are today, if you have a TV personality and they have one slip up, it can completely ruin their career, couldn't it? And that's not even seven years as a wild animal eating grass with the oxen. That's just one slip up on television. Career is going, right? And so this is what happens with King Nebuchadnezzar. And so he gets a warning. And Daniel uh, advises him. And he says, King, God's trying to tell you something. You've seen enough of my God. You've seen out of him what he's able to do. You had better listen and start having some... Uh, real heart searching here and get some things right with God or else this is going to be your future. It's like, pardon me for this. We've already started watching Christmas movies. Okay. You all know the Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens, the three, three ghosts and everything that come and to Ebenezer Scrooge. This is kind of what's going on with Nebuchadnezzar is he gets this warning that unless he changes his way, that he has a bad future ahead of him. But unlike in The Christmas Carol, he doesn't see the light. Scrooge doesn't get right, and he has to go about the hard lesson, right? And so we come down to verse 28, and it says, All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he walked into the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Now listen to this, okay? The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Oh my. Look what I've done. Right? He's looking out over Babylon. He can see the hanging gardens. He can see the beauty of the nation. All the kingdoms that's been conquered. All of the wealth and the riches they have. And he says, look at what I've done. In verse 31, it says, While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, you done messed up. Right? That's my interpretation. While the word was in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. That same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men and did eat grass as oxen. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till the hairs were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven and mine understanding returned unto me. I blessed the Most High 
and I praise and honor him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his generation or his kingdom is from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time, my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and the brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords sought unto me, and I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. Written by the hand of an exceedingly arrogant and wicked man, after God has dealt with him and changed his heart, humbled him, and brought him to himself. Isn't that insane? Isn't that crazy that God would use a man such as Nebuchadnezzar, that God would work in his life in this way to bring about this change? Let me ask you this. If you were God, now that's a dangerous question, right? If you were God, what would you do with someone like Nebuchadnezzar? Strike him dead? Lightning bolts from heaven, that's a good option, isn't it? We look in the New Testament and we find that those who came out against Jesus and were speaking ill to him and whatnot, that Jesus' disciples begged Jesus and says, hey, why don't we call down fire from heaven to consume them? And Jesus says, you know no, what spirit you are of. I came to bring life, not destroy it, right? And we find the heart of God was the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament, right? You ever run into anyone that said that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament? Yes. You hear that quite often, right? These are people who are unfamiliar with their scriptures. The ones who have focused on his judgments in the Old Testament, but not in his long-suffering and his mercy before the judgments. And so God has worked the same in the Old Testament as he does in the New Testament. We find that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He changes not. And just as he was merciful in the Old Testament, he's merciful in the New Testament, vice versa. Well, and how often in the New Testament does he speak of hell and damnation and fire and judgment? Just the fact that he comes for salvation causes us to have to reckon with what is he saving them from. But all throughout the Old Testament, he was still seeking to save them. He was seeking to call them unto himself, calling them to the understanding of who he was, because there is salvation in no other name besides him. And so he's the same back then as he is today. He is still drawing men to himself. And we see this perfectly illustrated with Nebuchadnezzar. And so as we've kind of done a little bit of an overview of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony here, I want to bring out just a few thoughts from this passage, some things that we can learn from this uh, and keep it kind of simple today, I guess. But the one that we've been focusing on the most so far is how God patiently deals with even the most lost and wicked men to bring them unto himself. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And for us, we look at men like Nebuchadnezzar and say, if hell was made for anyone, it was made for him. Right? We look at some of the most wicked, depraved. We look at some of the ones who are the most arrogant and spiteful, and we say, okay, yeah, they deserve to go to hell. But that is not God's heart toward them, is it? And so in our lives, have you ever been guilty of this? Evaluate, you don't have to raise your hand. But of evaluating people and saying, yeah, they're a lost cause. If there was anyone who was a lost cause, it would be Nebuchadnezzar, wouldn't it? Because you look at him and his position— and this is something, okay, I'm even guilty of because you look at people today and they're in a similar position to Nebuchadnezzar. 
They are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. There is no way they're going to humble themselves to believe in God, right? Have you ever been guilty of thinking that? You look at the world around us and people have no interest in God. People have no interest in Christ. They have no interest in the message of the gospel. And we say they have everything going for them. They have uh, all of the things this life has to offer. There's no way they are going to look for God. There's no way they're going to be open to the gospel. Wouldn't that apply to Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, he was the king of the world at that time, the known world from that point of view. He had conquered many nations and he was ruling over an empire. He had all the increase and the wealth and the goods. He was arrogant. He was wealthy. He was shaking his fists as God. He was trying to be worshipped as a God himself. He was making demands on people. He was willing to cast people into a fire just because they disobeyed him. That was the kind of man he was. And so he thought that he was God. How is he ever going to go looking for God? But God went looking for him. And God can work in the hearts of even the most wicked and furthest from God and bring them to himself. And so we don't want to underestimate God's power to work in the hearts and lives of men. We don't want to count anyone as unsavable, beyond God's power, beyond God's reach, because God is able to reach the furthest from him. Okay? I'm not saying that God made Nebuchadnezzar believe. It still ends up being a choice that man has to make, and people can reject God. But it's not because of God's lack of effort or his lack of availability. And so a couple more thoughts on this. One thing that God used in bringing Nebuchadnezzar to himself was Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, right? And God is still working the same way. He is working through godly witnesses in the lives of men today. And so never underestimate the power of a consistent godly witness in the lives of a lost person. And I think this is one of the greatest things that is lacking in the world today. It's not God's lack of ability to save or people's lack of receptivity. They are lacking people to be a witness on God's behalf. They are lacking people to show who God is and what God's capable of in their lives. And so that is where we fit in, right? If you're a Christian here today, if we can live like Daniel and... I'll say their Babylonian name just because I remember them better. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If we live like them before this world, if we take a stand on godly principles, if we allow God to work in us and through us, then what a testimony that is to the unsaved in the world about us and how that is going to draw people to God. I've said over and over what the world needs is to see God in our lives to where they can see that we have something that they don't and they want it. Right? And so it is a consistent godly witness in this world that they need. They need us to be separated, to be distinct, to be different, and to show them the God that we serve. They don't need white noise that blends in with all the rest of the, the fuss and the noise of this world. They need people who are truly living in a godly manner. Another thing that we learn from this is that God's options are limitless. Right? We forget how great and powerful God is and how much that he is actually capable of doing. Because whenever God is working in the hearts and lives of men, there is no option that's not on the table. I mean, even if it comes down to taking a king and sending him out to eat with the beast of the field, that's an option, right? And so you start thinking about people in our lives that we would like to see saved. God has all the resources at the end of his fingertips that he can put into those people's lives to draw them to himself. Sometimes even extreme things. Uh, I've told the story in the past that with uh, Les's dad, he 
never was in church, never had anything to do with God all the time that Les was growing up. Whenever uh, Les was in a Christmas play or when she was being baptized or whenever there was something special going on at church, any of the, he wouldn't even come for those. He would not darken the church door for nothing. He said that he got saved whenever he was uh, a child, but he had no desire for anything in church. He only desired to go out, to work, to provide for his family, to make money, to earn a living. God was the furthest thing from his mind until God decided to use a very large club to knock sense into him and allow a tree to fall on him. And then whenever he was no longer able to go out and work and instead was laying on the flat of his back in the hospital, God was able to talk to him a little bit. Right? Sometimes that's what has to happen. And since then, he has been faithful in church. He's uh, leading service. He's a song leader, even though he can't sing and all these different things. He does these things. He comes to church. He's like, okay, God got my attention. God got Nebuchadnezzar's. He's still doing that kind of stuff in the world today. And so the options are limitless. God can get a hold of people. A similar story with my grandfather. Uh, never knew him to go to church, having interest in the things of God. And God had to put him in a hospital as well to deal with him. Seems like God likes doing that. I don't know. Something about hospitals causes people to think a little bit more about eternity, I guess. But anyway, a little taste of death, yeah. Mm -hmm. A prison, yeah. I did I did prison ministry for about two years and I loved it. And one of the things I loved the most about prison ministry is you didn't have to convince them they were bad people. You didn't have to convince them they were sinners. I mean they were they knew what they could tell you the crimes that they had done. They're like, yeah, I messed up. I need help. I'm like, okay, well, you're in a good place for that. And so, yeah, God gets their attention. And there is a lot of times that uh, God would put them in prison to wake them up. I lost track of how many church kids I ran into in jail, how many pastor's sons I ran into in jail. They were raised up in church. They were taught the truth, and then they rebelled against it. And guess where they found themselves? They found themselves on lockup, listening to a preacher. See, God can do those kind of things. He can get people's attention. And so that brings us down to verse number 37. And those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. And I'll tell you, one of the greatest things that prevents people from coming to Christ is their pride. They won't humble themselves and come to him admitting that they're a sinner, unable to save themselves and that they need him. Instead, okay, I'm a good person. I'm going to do this. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to do this. I'm going to show God what a good person I am. That's pride. But humility is whatever it says, I am a sinner. I can never repay God for my sins. I can never do enough good works to outweigh my bad works. All my religious activities aren't going to cut it. I have no hope whatsoever outside of him. Jesus, please forgive me. Please save my soul. That is whenever a person gets saved. And so people need to be humbled. The old saying is sometimes people have to hit the bottom before they look up. And sometimes, that, sometimes that's true. But as we're talking about prison and hospitals and hitting the bottom, I want to draw our attention back to an earlier part in this, that God does not have pleasure in seeing people hit bottom. He doesn't have pleasure in bringing them through this process. But he loves them so much that he is willing to do what it takes, right? Mm -hmm. And the part that I want to bring our attention back to is the fact that God warned Nebuchadnezzar First, God never brings judgment upon someone without first warning them. I don't know if you've ever been guilty of this, had this happen to you, but have you ever been going through a hard time and you start questioning and saying, is this because of something I did wrong? Have you ever been there? 
It's like nothing seems to go right. Is this because I sinned? Is it and you start racking your brain trying to figure out what God's punishing you for? That's not the way that God works. God lets you know if he's punishing you, he lets you know. He gives you a warning, right? Just as I would be a horrible parent if I didn't tell my kids why I was punishing them. I'd just pick them up and just start spanking them one day and say, ah, you know, are not. What did I do, Dad? You ought to know what you did. No, I don't know. I'm That'd be a horrible parent, wouldn't it? And wouldn't that take the entire purpose out of it if you didn't even know why you were going through it? And so I believe that before God brings punishment, before he brings chastisement on an individual, that they're going to know why it's coming. Okay? So that's another lesson as well. Uh, something else interesting from this passage is if you had been Daniel or his three friends and you had worked around the king and seen the way that he acted and been treated the way that he treated them, what would be your attitude toward the king? What would you desire of him? <laughs> yeah. God, how? why are you letting this guy rule? This guy is corrupt. He is awful. He's horrible. Daniel will be there. He's serving the king, but he's doing it gingerly because he knows if he ticks him off, he can be thrown in the lion's den, right? And so he's being careful about what he's going to do, and he's contemplating. He's saying, you know, I could slip a poison into his drink. You know, the th three Hebrews are like, did you see what he just did? He tried to set us on fire. How can we get even? Isn't that the way we would process things? And so another lesson that we can get from this is that God is more than capable of avenging his people. Because we set out for revenge. We want them to get their just desserts. We are desiring to see them fail. We want to see them depose. We want to see their lives fall apart, right? And if we get a hand in it, if we can cause it to happen some way, it's that much better. We seek revenge, but the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. What is it? Love your yeah, love your enemies. Pray for them who hate you, right? Do good to them who use you. And so there's all of these things that we find in Scripture, but we see this played out in this passage so well because Daniel or his three friends could have attempted to retaliate against the king. They could have prayed for his uh, downfall. They could have sought ways to undo him, but they didn't do that, right? They just continued to live godly before him. He could try to burn them. He could try to create all kinds of issues for them, but they just continued to live godly before him. And then one day they got to see him out in the field. I can imagine, okay, maybe Daniel and his three friends are uh, a little more spiritual than I am. But if I would have been one of them, I would have got a nice little seat on the side of that hill and watched the king down there eating his grass. I would have been observing him down there, like, acting like an animal, and I've been there with my buddies, and I've been, hey, look at that lunatic. I would have got enjoyment out of that, okay? Maybe I'm the only one that twisted. I don't know. I would have gotten enjoyment out of that because of all that. Yeah, Kevin, be there with me. So you think that by, like, year number six or looking to God, and they're like, okay, God, he's got the point. This is when a little mercy, please. And so God was able to mete out justice on this man, not in a way that would destroy him. Because isn't that what we seek for whenever we want revenge, is we want to see them destroyed. God doesn't seek to destroy them, but instead he seeks to correct them. To bring them to himself. If vengeance would have came, if they would have avenged themselves on him, he never would have came to this place that we find at the end of chapter number four, where he is truly praising and exalting God, where he has truly been abased. And so whenever we seek revenge on our enemies, whenever we seek to do evil to those who have done us evil, we undo our testimony we tie God's hands in a way that God is no longer able to use us in that person's life to bring him 
to himself, right? But whenever we continue to be long-suffering and patient and merciful toward these people, God is able to mete out the exact justice that is going to do the needed purpose in this person's life. Be very careful whenever you seek revenge. Be very careful whenever you enjoy someone's undoing too much because God's undoing that person may be his redoing that person. And you look at what a change that God made in Nebuchadnezzar through this process. See, whenever he came back after the seven years, I guarantee he was a completely different king. Right? He learned his lesson. Now, just as a side note on this, wouldn't this be an awesome movie? Yeah. Hollywood get a hold of this and turn it into a movie. This would be great, wouldn't it? <clears throat> Probably not. Okay. We find in this, and, and this has already been stated, so we won't, won't tarry too long on this point, but God has a way of humbling the proud and exalting the humble. We need to be aware of pride. It can sneak into our lives. It can easily get a hold of us. And we need to be careful because whenever we start exalting self, whenever we start getting puffed up, God is able to knock our prop out from under us. God is able to humble us when we, when we become proud. But we find that he is also able to exalt the humble. In the world that we live in today, it seems like the, pr the proud are the ones who are getting promoted, right? But God can still work and he can still exalt his people. There may be plenty of Nebuchadnezzars in this world, but there's still plenty of room for Daniels and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednegoes. Uh, I already brought out a moment ago, uh, God warns before judgment. That is a principle we see throughout scripture. He is patient. He is long-suffering. He warns before judgment. How many times do we find, uh, for instance, we can look at Noah. Whenever Noah was 120 years building the boat, we find in the New Testament it says that he was a preacher of righteousness. So why did it take him 120 years to build the boat? Because he was also preaching and trying to see, see other people get saved. Other people believe he was warning people of the judgment to come, right? How many of the prophets do we have in the Bible are prophets that are warning Israel, if you don't turn back to God, judgment is coming. God always warns before judgment comes. Another extremely important lesson for us to learn in this, and this is very applicable to us today, is that God is in control of kings and kingdoms, nations and governments. And isn't that what was said about three different times in this passage? Uh, I've got it underlined a couple of those times. That the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. Wouldn't it do our government leaders a lot of good to read that passage? You Did you catch the last part of that? He setteth up over it the basest of men. So he says the basest, they're the, the low quality, the low men on the, on the totem pole here. Some of the worst of men. And they think that they're the greatest, don't they? Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the greatest too, didn't he? But they believe that they have got there through their scheming and their conniving and their uh, all of their working and laboring trying to promote themselves. But no man or woman can be in a position of ruling or leadership unless God allows it. It says that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. See, there's a lot of Christians in America that would have done good to read this a couple years ago in the election cycle, right? I heard so many different uh, messages and pastors and stuff railing about the election in the United States whenever Joe Biden won and how it was a stolen election and all these. You all heard all that, right? But what does the Bible say? Most high ruleth over the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Honestly, elections doesn't matter. The government process doesn't matter. God is ultimately in control. He can determine who is going to be there. 
And we automatically assume and say, oh, he's going to put the godly one in there. He'll put the Christian in there. He'll put the one who aligns with his word in there. Not necessarily because sometimes God's will is judgment on that nation that have exalted themselves. Right? We remember back in the Old Testament, whenever the people says, we don't want God to rule over us anymore. We want a king like the nations around us. And so God gave them Saul, which was the kind of king they desired. A warrior, a man that stood head and shoulders over everyone else. A man who was proud and arrogant, about two-thirds crazy, right? Were they better or worse under King Saul? They were worse. And then God, just to give them an example here, brought David in afterward, a man after God's own heart, and said, hey, look at the difference. No, David wasn't perfect, but he was much different king than what Saul was. And so God is in control of kings and kingdoms, nations and governments. And so we don't need to sweat whenever the wicked are in control because God is ultimately in charge. And they can't vote God out and they can't depose him from his throne. There is nothing they can do about him because God is in control. He has already told us, he has laid out in his word how this world is going to go. We don't know the course that it's going to take to get there, but we know how it ends. And so all the things that's going on in this world today, as crazy as they may seem, are ultimately going to fold into God's plan. doesn't mean that God wants people like uh, Vladimir Putin invading another country and slaughtering all kinds of innocent people. No, that's not God's will, but that's part of the, the result of the sin of man and the wickedness and the course that's going to have to take place to bring about God's ultimate plan, right? It all works into his plan, and his plans are so much more complex than we can ever fathom, we can ever imagine. And so God is in control. And so the very last thing that I want to bring out here is can you imagine how Daniel felt? Okay? This has been 20, 30 years coming, okay? And Daniel has consistently lived a godly life before this king for 20 or 30 years. He came in and Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan of the pagans. Okay? He was as Babylonian as it came. And after 20 or 30 years of him being God before Nebuchadnezzar, of him living Christ-like before Nebuchadnezzar, he gets to hear these words out of Nebuchadnezzar's mouth. He's probably sitting there with Nebuchadnezzar while Nebuchadnezzar is pinning his testimony in this chapter. And I figure that joy is overflowing Daniel's heart to hear these words and to see these words being written by this king in praise to the God of Daniel. Knowing that God has done this work in Nebuchadnezzar's life and that God has used Daniel to be a witness to Nebuchadnezzar to bring this about. It was a long road. It was a long journey to get from Daniel chapter 1 to Daniel chapter number four. But could you imagine the feeling of satisfaction and of joy and of praise on Daniel's lips whenever he saw Nebuchadnezzar truly believe, truly give God honor and glory for him to truly humble himself and say, I'm just a king. I'm only here because God put me here. And God is ultimately the one that's in charge. And so Daniel has just gotten a front row seat to all of this. And I figure that Daniel probably just sat back and just shook his head and says, God, I can't believe the way you made all this work out. I can't believe how you brought all this together. Thank you for letting me be a part. That would have been phenomenal, wouldn't it? And God is still doing that today. And if we will just walk with him, if we will just live for him consistently, it's amazing what God may do in your life and through your life, but it may take 10, 20, 30 years for you to see the benefits and to reap the rewards. But look at Daniel sitting here looking back at over all of these things and saying, look at what God has done. It takes time. So does anyone have any questions or any comments, anything to add to this this morning?
Nothing at all? Okay, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll take us a short break. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Just thank you for your blessings. And Lord, we thank you for this passage that we have. And Lord, what a, a great testimony from Nebuchadnezzar, Lord. And what a, a huge difference you made in his life, Lord. Lord, I just pray you'd help us to take these lessons that we've discussed this morning. Help us, Lord, to, uh, to remember them. Help us, Lord, just to meditate upon them and see what you can do uh, through us and in our lives and in the lives of others around us. Lord, help us to learn this lesson that you are truly in charge, you are truly in control. Even whenever the world seems like it's completely out of control and out of hand, Lord, you still know what you're doing, Lord, and we can trust you. Thank you so much for all that you do, and all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.